This episode is brought to you by Still Kickin'. It is a nonprofit started by podcast host and writer and all-around incredible woman who I think is so talented, Nora McInerney. This is not part of the ad copy, just, you know, personal endorsement. But she wrote um, No Happy Endings, uh, Hot Young Widows Club, It's Okay to Laugh. She wrote Bad Moms most recently. I think she is so, so incredible. Um, but beside that, the, this particular organization, Still Kickin' Co., is a, it's a nonprofit founded by Nora, and it's where people turn when life gets tough. Still Kickin' offers apparel, e-courses, retreats to support awesome humans going through awful things. Everything from a perfect tri-blend t-shirt to a supportive learning community to help you live with grief. Still Kickin' has several e-courses dedicated to different aspects of grief, and they also have one about how to be a good supporter to a griever. These range from $25 to $199, which includes audio lessons, session handouts, custom worksheets, tailored homework, and even guided meditations and visualizations. Um, They they intentionally price these below market value and offer payment plans to make sure they're a great value and accessible. And they are developed, these grief courses are developed with psychologist Dr. Anna Roth, an actual psychologist and grief expert. And uh, what's even better with every Still Kick In purchase you make, you not only support yourself, but also Still Kick In offers cash, real cash grants to help heroes out. And heroes, as defined by Still Kick In and Nora, are, are people like Shanta, who's a single mom raising a young daughter with a spinal injury, who's using her cash grant toward. Um, the purchase of an accessible van, for example. There, This is an incredible cause, an incredible resource. I think people think that uh, matters of the heart of emotion, things like grief, you should be able to almost organically navigate through as they're part of the human experience. But I'd actually argue that's far from the truth. And the tools offered by a psychologist and the resources offered by Still Kickin enable you to not only navigate this better yourself, but to be a better supporter for those who are enduring some of the more difficult seasons of their life that your support, it becomes more essential than ever. But in the absence of knowing what to do, sometimes we bow out, right? And I, I, I could not speak more highly of Nora of this program of Still Kickin. And um, I hope you guys will go to stillkickin.co slash courses to learn more. Not .com, .co. Go to stillkickin.co slash courses to learn more about this fantastic organization. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I am a Chicago-based entrepreneur, author, pop culture commentator, podcast host, and resident Hamilton. For the purposes of this episode, I'm probably also that pain in the ass like, girl in your English like, class in high school. That is like waxing poetic with the teacher about symbolism, metaphor, literary devices of some book you hated, and she probably didn't even read it either. But I, I live to egg on flowery discussion. It's really a favorite pastime of mine. But truly, I think people might get the impression that because of the depth of analysis in this podcast, I'm kind of like, uh, what's the, I don't even know what the word is, like nerdy and precocious. Like, I guess, I don't know. I hate when girls are like, I'm a nerd. Like, okay, Carly Kloss, relax. Um. I bet you are, because um, it's like, yeah, we're, can't we just be people with interests, women who, who who have a broad range of interests? There's something about nerd that carries this like negative or shameful connotation or suggests that, you know, you need to be stereotyped if you have any realm of intellectual interest when really like, who cares? It's, you know, how I feel about not like other girls <laughs> type of commentary. And I think I heard this grievance early on in the podcast. The the uh, je ne sais quoi of a nerd <laughs> is the 
almost delusional level of interest in a narrow topic to the point where you don't know you're nerdy. You just think everyone likes Magic the Gathering, you know? First, some housekeeping. One, I interviewed the unmatched, the unbelievable, the beautiful, the talented Garcelle Bouvet, who's a long, incredible career, far before Real Housewives, such as playing Fancy on The Jamie Foxx Show. And I had the pleasure of interviewing her last week. And that episode will actually air next week but because, well, anybody is so kind to give me their time. There's an element of alignment in a press sense with when the show is on and the hiatus is over next week when we will resume the controversy with Brandy and Denise, who, you know, Garcelle's a smidge tight-lipped about given their friendship, but that's understandable. So this week I decided, well... I mean, a little last minute, like I can never figure out what I want to do until I figure it out. And then it's so late. Uh, But let us be there in five of it all. I'm sitting here with a burnt quesadilla and a red wine, just basking in the glory that is the pending arrival of Hamill film on Disney Plus, which is, of course, the original Broadway cast doing the entirety of Hamilton, the musical in the Richard Rogers Theater, where they initially debuted on Broadway. And... It is like, what, $7 a month or something on Disney Plus? I I don't know. I definitely don't use my father-in-law's login. But anyway, the arrival of Hamilton on stage as a movie is a big deal for so many reasons. One being the tremendously high price point of seeing the actual play. I was lucky enough to see it. But it's very different when you like sink so much money into a ticket and feel like that's your, to be on theme here, your one shot to see it. So like I studied... I I listened to the the album backwards and forwards before I saw the show. I wanted to approach it like a concert. My husband went in cold turkey. I think there's something to be said about both approaches. And you can do either. You can listen to this deep dive with zero knowledge or with all the knowledge. I guess first I should clarify. You're probably like, didn't you already do this? Answer, yes. But I redid it because I'm insane. <laughs> also, I, I okay, so... Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I will probably refer to it a lot in terms of things I've already said. It's just a website where people like me, creators, post bonus content behind a paywall so they can, you know, make bonus content they spend time on and people pay for it who are like really into this, you know, the thing they're talking about or what they say. And um, yeah, a small group of people that are really supportive of the podcast, especially when I was having trouble with advertisers during the quarantine. uh, subscribers to Patreon have like access to 100 bonus episodes, uh, one of those being the Hamilton PowerPoint we did on Sunday at the PowerPoint party where we had a, a stage tech talk about um, former stage tech talk about the importance of the set design and the Lazy Susan like rotating stage. There were two listeners that did an amazing Hamiltonian Awards presentation about the best songs to karaoke in different scenarios. One was a deep dive into Lin-Manuel Miranda and I mean, the human ray of sunshine that he is. He is my Brad Pitt. He is what the world needs right now. We are so lucky to have him. I truly am obsessed. I uh, he, He's the first person I, I think I've ever written actual fan mail to. Like, I wrote him a letter, like, last year. Uh, I, like, I'm freaking writing to Mary-Kate and Ashley's fun club by, to check her money order to Burbank, California. I um, I just, I don't know. I, I really, really think he's brilliant. And I think, you know, as we... That, that, to me, is like, that is the dream in life, right? To be known for, like, your words. The... To, whether in my case spoken or written, but in his case, certainly, I guess both too, but but the way he writes, like, I don't know. I just think he's the best kind of famous. He's so rich, but he's not like bothered by paparazzi. He is like 
so into his family. He just seems like a really grounded person. I just adore him. There's few people I have true death cab moments for, but I will follow him into the dark. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I did do a, a deep dive of Act 1 on uh, Patreon, that website I was talking about. Um, that's still there, by the way. And if you listen to that, this won't be redundant. This is actually a different episode. I when I I did that last July and then I never did act two. I promised all I'd do act two, but I never really did it until uh, I got back around to thinking about Hamill film and got kind of back into the hype. And it motivated me to revisit everything. Act two is heavy for me. It's tough and never shed a tear on the cast album. Couldn't even get myself together in person. Um, I've been lucky enough to see Hamilton twice. The first time I cried so hard during like it's quiet uptown, etc., that I I like spent the entire rest of the play trying to not be crying before the house lights came on. And then the end song killed me and I just I felt like a basket case. So then when I went back with my sister, I was like, I'm gonna step out for these two songs. I've already seen them, but I want to be able to enjoy the end not being upset. But I still kind of was, and I don't know, I just don't remember a lot about the second half. And I think this is holding me back from talking about it because I don't know if I have much to add uh, beyond like my utter despair. Uh, and then I think I get scared too of revisiting sad things and analyzing them. However, we did, you know, we, we, we powered through Taylor Swift's soon you'll get better and I can do this too. But um, it's, it's, had, it's been an iterative process. At first I wanted to do drunk history act two because I was bored last weekend and I was like, oh, I have all this wine, I'll wine taste and I'll do act two. I filmed a few songs uh, the dog knocked over my cord, which knocked over my iPad onto a glass of wine, went everywhere. Not the end of the world, but you have to like clean it up. And then I was distracted. The videos are so awkward, whatever. I'll use them for something else. So then I started recording act two. And then I was like, God, I really wish I could just um, do this from rewatching it. So I could speak more to the depth and the facial expressions that I found so soul crushing because speaking to it from a cast album standpoint, like you know, I'll analyze the lyrics, but I, I think there needs to be a piece of it where we really go into the video. So long story short, I'm going to post the more like clinical. Uh, like a part of it today, talking about like lyrics and plot, but then after I watch the um, actual stage play tonight at midnight or tomorrow, I'm going to follow up with more detail as just kind of a hybrid approach because I felt I don't know. I just have been feeling like I'm not able to capture it well enough. And uh, I want you to have something beforehand if you want. But I also think part of the fun is going to be recapping what we see or what we newly notice on Disney Plus. Right. I don't know. Like a lot of people are like, should I listen to this if I haven't seen it or heard it? I'm not sure. I think you do. I think I'm a little in the weeds. So you need a baseline knowledge. I'll try to like tell you if there's some sort of spoiler, though. It's history. Like, I think especially if you've even high level heard the cast album, like you have a vague idea of what's going on. And trust me when I say nothing I can verbally say, or even the music alone will not spoil what it actually looks like on stage. I find them to be very different experiences. Here's my concern. I don't, I don't know how it's going to translate on a TV. I am so tired of watching stuff personally, and I have trouble paying attention in my home. And I'm worried people are going to like half-ass watch it and then already be blinded by the bias that comes with people not wanting to feed into hype. And then they're going to be like, this sucks. And then I'm going to be like, no, it doesn't. Because here's the thing. I, I'm not new to Broadway. I don't think that it's the only musical ever. I know many other musicals do many of the things it's heralded for. But we can celebrate something and focus on something without suggesting that everything else lacks those things. And also, 
I'm quite open to Hamilton uh, criticism. Just I'm not open to broad uh, blanket statements of it like being terrible, because honestly, I just am so not here for people wanting to be contrarians to things that are popular, like just let people enjoy stuff. And beyond that, I'm open to criticism, especially like uh, the way they that the show and the actors and the choices Lynn made in terms of the way race is depicted in terms of what it does for diversity. I think there's some mixed feedback on that, which I will go through later because I think it's in very valid. But, you know, I'm not I'm not an expert on <laughs> musicals. I am a super fan who super loves uh, any and all analyses of works of literature. And this so happens to be my favorite subject, my loyal royal subject, which is poetry. <laughs> and uh, as many of you know about me, poetry has been a big part of my life. Since I was a kid entering poetry contest, my book published a year and a half ago, Jingle Jingle Social Media Star, it's an 82-line poem. And if you listen to my How I Built This, I largely, I drew so many parallels between like the state, state of despair I was in and going back to basics with like the only gift I feel like I have. And I, too, as cheesily felt like I wrote my way out of a horrible situation where I felt like obsolete and had no income and um, wanted to be a published author, but I had no permission to be. I had no credentials. Like, it's, I, I, I can't emphasize enough what this uh, this musical means to me just in terms of the way it's uh, hugely motivated me and propelled me forward in following a lot of what I want to be my legacy. And I genuinely mean that. I, I, I don't know. I don't I don't carry many things I see with me as much as I as I do this, with the exception of maybe like, you know, Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt's Twister, along with Devin Sawa's Night of the Twisters and Wizard of Oz, and really all the twisters I saw as a kid making me horrified of tornadoes in addition to kidnapping, quicksand, and fires. Those were really the only things I thought about uh, due to the media I consumed. No thanks to Face on the Milk Carton and the like, but that those things in Hamilton are really the uh, defining works of my life. Anyway, if you're new here, I just kind of warm up via intro. This is the episode we're we're getting into it. I can't tell you a specific point to skip ahead to because I'm going to kind of start to talk about themes and I'll weave through it as we go. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for your patience. And I really hope you like this. Yeah, you can listen to none of these, all of these, whatever. Hopefully they won't be redundant. I'm not trying to blue ball you or get a cash grab by leaving the majority of Act 2 on Patreon. It's just I'm trying to fulfill a promise. And part of it will need to be after I watch the film itself and there's more freedom to like use music and stuff on there here i'm just like so scared and it's more fun when i can like play parts of it anyway if you're starting this like completely new maybe read the wikipedia page you need to know basics because i'm not gonna i'm a little too in the weeds to take that far of a step back to like explain basic characters but as long as you know who hamilton and burr are who eliza schuyler hamilton's wife her two sisters angelica peggy the main, you know, characters that are Alexander's friends, Lawrence Mulligan, Marquis de Lafayette, the, you know, other founding fathers like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. If you understand a vague timeline of the American Revolution, uh, you should be good. I think we all know the highlights, right? I'll kind of explain historical context, too. And you'll notice in the play, the same actors, they sw- a lot, a few of them switch roles, act one to act two, like Davy Diggs is... Marquis de Lafayette, Act Two, he's Jefferson. Uh, Anthony Ramos is um, John Lawrence in Act One. He is Philip Schuyler in Act Two, Alexander Hamilton's son. 
you know, Jasmine Cephas Jones is Peggy in Act One. She's Mariah Reynolds in Act Two. Spoiler alert. This isn't really a spoiler. Again, it's history, but uh, the person that Hamilton has an affair with. But the good thing is, like, I was, I, you can revisit Disney Plus. You can listen in whatever Kate, like order you want. If you watch the show first, then come here, then go back, whatever. It doesn't really matter. I don't want to bore you, but if you're like a Hamilton fan, hopefully this will be a good use of your time because I just want to like, I don't know. It's just fun to enjoy something. I know there's other things going on in the world, but sometimes the beauty of a deep dive is you don't have the luxury of coming up for air. You know, you almost have to narrowly be obsessed with this one thing for a moment and it kind of serves as a release for me at times, but all the better a release that we can also relate back to modern issues and learn more from going back into the world. I also am going to make note of this. I want to point out, I want to refer people to the collaboration Lin-Manuel Miranda did with Rachel Cargill uh, that extracts lyrics from the musical and pairs them with modern headlines of racial issues to kind of illustrate the unconscionably present struggle in modern day of racism and how different lines in Hamilton speak to this. And uh, yeah, that's kind of a big reason I wanted to redo this episode too, is because I'm kind of looking at this a little bit differently now. And I think especially as we watch a musical that's been revered for, you know, the, the use of diversity in the cast that's been criticized for having black men play uh, white men who are slave owners. Uh, there's a lot of interesting racial discussion about this that I encourage you to research if that's of interest to you. And uh, I mean, there's a like an entire play in response called The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda that I haven't seen, uh, but I've read about. And yeah, you know, just trying to be more mindful of where race plays a key role going forward in anything I'm consuming. But with Hamilton as a production that was revered for its use of diversity and that uh, uses the, the language of black communities like rap and hip hop and R&B and celebrates a lot of black culture the very least we need to be doing is, you know, instead of just reaping the benefits of the incredible language that is rap, hip hop, R&B, jazz, these uh, musical styles that are completely rooted in black culture, instead of watching a musical that celebrates and uses black culture for entertainment, the very least we can do is be paying attention to the lyrics and the themes and the systems and that were put in place at this time and think about how we can apply this art to modern day in terms of deepening our understanding of other people, deepening our empathy of other people's struggle and then more deeply understanding ourselves. Um, I know this sounds so cheesy, but like, I think this is what's important about Broadway musicals is the, the communication style of a musical. It can deliver bold, radical, heartfelt, gut wrenching. It, it, it can deliver these messages that we may otherwise have a bit of a defense up to reject because the absorption of any type of extreme energy i think we are naturally resistant to for our own self-preservation but through song through dance through you know theater the in-person interaction with the actors through the melodies through the lyrics all of these things kind of are a pleasant means to serve often unpleasant or uncomfortable themes that through the delivery are more easily palatable and I think permeate your brain in a way that kind of serves as a creative jackhammer to dislodge a lot of the areas in which you may not even realize you're inflexible because you don't even know you're being influenced because that's why art is amazing. It affects you without even you even trying to be affected. 
and I don't know, that's a big, again, I don't know a ton about musicals, but they're the disarming nature of uh, delivering what is most of the time a very clear point in perspective about a much more serious issue than it looks like on the surface is what's so incredibly powerful. And you will walk away from watching it being like, holy crap, who else? Who dees? Who dees my ass? Who lives? Who dies? Who tells my story? Uh, the uh, the this yeah anyways the 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 we will go through so many different themes um of both not throwing away but also throwing away your shot of being like uh oh, just you wait wait for it of uh the juxtaposition of uh never being satisfied but being with a partner that has the ability to think things are enough the uh importance of Talk less, smile more. Hamilton's obsession with never being silenced, only ultimately to die and then be forced to be silenced before the play can end. Eliza's never the type to try and grab the spotlight, but she finds herself at this in the spotlight at the end, emerging as the protagonist. What does this? What does this mean? The, the significance of, of uh, Philip in the in the number seven of um, the the melodic lead-in to the Ten Dual Commandments that is uh, plays majorly into a big thing of the play, which are that there are three duels and this countdown is important for so many reasons, specifically being counted in French among Philip and his mother, Eliza, him changing up the melody on number seven, him being shot on the seventh shot. I mean, like guys, there is so much here. I don't even know where to begin. I'm getting excited already. So I guess what we can do is like kind of start, but also I'm going to like talk about other things in the midst of it because there's so many things to say here, but you know, I don't want you to think I'm doing a long ass intro when really, I just, you know, I've, I, I started before this began. I'm going a million miles a minute. I don't know how I'll include all of my thoughts and I'm no Broadway expert. I mean, I, I, let's be honest. I like the hits. I like Mamma Mia. <laughs> I like Wicked. I, 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 uh, you know, I'm, I'm here for some phantom, some Les Mis. I can't quote Hello Dolly or, or South Pacific. I'll have with some Pippin. I don't know. I saw hair once. That's alternative, right? There, there's nudity. <laughs> I actually knew somebody who was in hair a long time ago. Uh, but I, I, I love Broadway and I appreciate it. I'm not an expert, but there's no there's no wrong way to talk about something you love, right? How does a bastard orphan son? First few notes we've played a few times. That dun 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 dun. dun. <laughs> I have the voice of an angel. Um, it's, it's supposed to emulate a door squeak. I'll enter A.Ham. The first song, it uh, details the first 15, 16 years of his life. And if, you know, if I break it down in too much detail, I will tell you the entire story. But each character emerges, tells a different part of his background, in which, of course, he is a bastard orphan son of a whore and a scotsman in saint croix his mother dies in bed with him sitting in their own sick the scent thick his cousin dies by suicide who he moves in with after his mother dies a hurricane destroys his island um and there is an offering taken up at church i believe to send him off to new york to live out his potential potential once it's realized the strength of his writing and what he could be doing with his life he writes his way out, and then we'll come back to this theme many, many times. Of, cur- of course, the notable thing here is that Burr is the the antagonist, is the narrator. As I said earlier, I think Eliza ultimately emerges as um, the protagonist in her own right, despite the 
show itself being about the life of Alexander Hamilton. But keep in mind, it is just Hamilton. His first name is not in the show, leaving possibility for it to be uh, about more than just him. So Lin-Manuel Miranda has talked about the inspiration he has uh, gleaned from Jesus Christ Superstar, my favorite way to use the Lord's name in vain, as evidenced through my recent cooking tutorial, in terms of the dynamic between like a Jesus and Judas, for example. These uh, Burr and Hamilton are, their legacy is the fact that they are enemies, right? But what many people do not know is that they first were friends, frenemies, one might say in, in modern terms. If I wanted to go into a 10-minute, you know, diatribe about the parallels I draw between the um, privilege and patience of a Jill Zarin and the young, scrappy, and hungriness of an early Bethany Frankel in the first season of Real Housewives of New York, I could, but I will not, because we're going to stay on topic. I think, of course, the, the important thing to factor in, too, is the, the concept of Hamilton being an immigrant, right? This is something that I think was very important for Lynn and why he told the story in the first place and inserted himself in it. And uh, it's kind of posing the question of, like, how does this person grow up to be a hero and a scholar? My question is, does, is he a hero? I don't know. I think that was a really interesting use of words. I, I guess it's playing on gentleman and a scholar, but also it, it it brings us back to the existential question I'm always asking myself or the questions about moral relativism I'm always asking myself, which, you know, in terms of one's material contribution, are we, are we saying somebody is good at their job, like a good president, a good secretary of state, a, a great founding father? Uh, is that sentiment attached to their the clinical mapping of their goals in that role? to their outcomes or do we need to attach some sort of moral sentiment to it you know the the exercise of presentism and the way we view founding fathers historical characters period is i think really fascinating and it's just really hard to gauge sometimes or reconcile your thoughts about it when you're reading about how allegedly great they were but there lacks a universal through line of morality because what was right and wrong then isn't there necessarily the same as what's right and wrong now my entire argument for Hamilton is he's a man obsessed with honor um, and honesty and all of these things that seem noble and true and right. But I kind of see the issue is that Hamilton is a man of incredible integrity, but of incredibly poor morality. I think that the integrity, the ability to consistently uphold your morals is one thing, but when your concept of right and wrong is a bit fundamentally skewed and you have what I'd armchair diagnose as narcissistic tendencies to really only look out for yourself at all costs like Hamilton does, unlike other characters, I think that it makes your integrity ultimately be your own demise because you're, up, you're, you're upholding a sense of true north that people would argue is the wrong direction fundamentally, right? Like the the thing you believe in so fiercely is, is just different from the way other people see the world. And I think that he has an aggressiveness and ferocity and scrappiness that is definitely a product of his background, of his inner child, if you will, that we'll talk through that I totally understand the way he is. And I think as in many great tragedies, somebody's greatest gift is also their fatal flaw. And I think this is really interesting to explore because the very um, tendencies and habits that make Alexander an outstanding writer, thinker, hard worker, contributor to the Republic are the very qualities that make him unreliable to his family. And it's just an interesting thing at the end of your life. You, you know, what's more important to you, the meaning of fame or the meaning of family? And, you know, is your legacy after you die as the seed you plant in a garden you'll never see grow more important to you than the impression you leave upon people in this life? There's, there's so many things that can make you seem objectively great. 
in the history books. But but do those things make you good? I don't know the answer of the, to these questions. I also have trouble knowing how normal my interest level in all of this is. I think I do have somewhat of a vested interest in the founding fathers, but the root of that is a vested dis- disinterest because like I grew like you guys know I grew up in Virginia. Like my the the entirety of my public school education as it relates to US history was the American Revolution was the Civil War. I know so little about the ni- uh, the 20th century. And all every every paper, every school play, every field trip, my god. I I've been to every Every battleground, every monument, Jamestown, Yorktown, Colonial Williamsburg aplenty. I've been to Monticello so many times and Mount Vernon. If George Washington slept there, I slept there because I was so bored. My probably third time at St. John's Church, I was like, oh, my God, Patrick Henry. We get it. Liberty or death. Two options. Pick one. It's like Sonia Morgan constantly reminding us she used to be one of the Morgans and hang out with John John Kennedy and Madonna all the time, which has a huge Latin following. It's like, the, the, we get it. Like, the more you say it, the more we're questioning its legitimacy. I'm kind of like, did he really say that? Like, didn't he do other things? Aren't there other stories? Give me liberty or give me death is powerful. Sure. I know we love a soundbite in history, but I don't know, guys. Sometimes I think Patrick Henry, you know, Paul Revere. It's like, I just think a lot of people probably took credit and overstated a lot of what these things were. Because they wrote it. They are the ones that controlled their own legacy, unlike Alex, who ultimately couldn't because those who survived him did. And his run-ins with scandal prevented him from even controlling a lot of it while he was alive. Also, can I just say, every time I was in Colonial Williamsburg, I just felt like, why aren't we celebrating the real heroine here? One redheaded colonial young American girl named Felicity Merriman? She's an icon. She's a queen. I I hope I need to focus on her at some point. She stole a horse <laughs> like Roy Gilmore stole a yacht from from a, a drunk, scary old dude with a ponytail named Jiggy Nye that still haunts my dreams. Why did she steal a horse? Why did Jiggy Nye own a place that killed horses? Things I'm not going to solve today, but nonetheless, a colonial person to keep in mind as a true uh, heroine of our time, though she is fictional. So, yeah, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, I've just talks of legacy and also the one of the really interesting things i brought up earlier that i think is important to note here in terms of who lives who dies who tells your story uh when lin-manuel miranda and rachel cargill did that collaboration well i guess to backtrack too the tricky thing of this is always going to be to talk talking about these characters and founding fathers in the context of how they are in the play in no way reflects my personal reverence i have a very complicated relationship with the founding fathers in general um that i'm working through via I mean, many things, but one being Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States of America. Uh, but I think that what's important to note in some of the criticism Hamilton's received um, as we you know, talk about his setup and him being an immigrant. And I think what's important to think through as you approach the intro and you see the cast, one of the one of the issues of the way so much of American history is told is that, you know, not only is it written by the winners, uh, but it's largely dictated by those who were in power at the time, which are, you know, white men. All the, the founding fathers are all white men. People of color and women are largely erased from the history of the origin of this country. And what Hamilton did that was incredible was place people of color and women into roles that are traditionally depicted by white men in an effort to make history then look like America now. 
which I think is an incredible thing, especially for the young people watching it to feel represented in our country's history. Um, and beyond that, to quote Obama, I think he's was he was talking about Hamilton. He mentioned how uh, the usage of uh, a language of revolution in the modern era, like rap and hip hop, in the context of the American Revolution, that juxtaposition being incredibly powerful in retelling the story of history and kind of taking back the narrative. And on the one hand, people of color in these roles places them rightfully into the narrative, but you almost forget watching it. They're outside of an offhanded mention of, of Sally Hemings, who's not not a character. She just said in in um, Thomas Jefferson's song, "What Did I Miss?" There's an exclusion of black characters from that period of history that inevitably had important roles in society and whose stories are just as important to tell because therein lies the issue is the erasure erasure of that history from the stories we tell from these eras. So is the replacement of white um, characters as people of color doing what it needs to do or is part of the problem to the telling of stories about white people only? You know what I mean? It, it, I think these are fair arguments and that they're important to think about. And while I can't speak from the perspective of a person of color watching the play and don't want to try to, I can talk through uh, different opinions I've read from different sides of the coin. And it's not even sides, really. It's just the, the importance of recognizing that it's, it's not that simple. You know, like this doesn't solve racism. This isn't uh, the job does not stop here. And the important thing I'm trying to move to carry with me going forward is just like ever. There's so many different ways to look at something, and based on somebody's own experience, it's completely valid. And it's important to consider all different angles of something. And just because Hamilton is wildly popular, it doesn't mean the criticism it's been met with is not valid, especially as it relates to its depiction of racism and it what it aims to correct for in having people of color in traditionally white roles. There's a, um, and I know I said earlier, like, I'm a stan and do not tell me that you hate Hamilton. What I mean is, like, Bradley, don't be like, it sucks. Like, you can tell me specific feedback. Um, and I totally believe in valid criticism, even for something I love. Uh, but I also mean from a sense of, I'm not a person of color. I cannot tell you how I perceive this from that standpoint. And I'd be interested to hear a different take on my um analysis if there's anybody who is a huge fan that wants to chat with me on patreon or anything like that i would love that i would have done that earlier if i didn't decide to do this episode today and it's due tomorrow i feel like i'm doing a disservice not including as many perspectives as possible hence why i typically crowdsource this is just going to be my perspective and for any um blind spots or uh, narrowness this causes i apologize in advance though i am trying to be better about taking a step back and thinking about this in, in a broader sense. I think, too, what really stuck with me, as I mentioned, Rachel Cargill and Lin-Manuel Miranda on Instagram collaborated to pull headlines from modern news stories and pair them with lyrics. And as I mentioned, like, you know, the theme of legacy is one I find incredibly poignant and layered that we'll go through. But I want you to think about, um, there's a, a headline poll that says, Brianna Taylor's family and friends remember her greatness. as Hopefully most of you know, Brianna Taylor was murdered by police in her home in bed. 
I'm reading from justice4briana.org. I just don't want to miss words, mince words. On the night of March 13th, the Louisville Metro Police executed a warrant, specifically a no-knock warrant, um, looking for drugs they never found, reportedly trafficked by a person who did not live with Brianna or in her complex and whom they already had in custody. They sprayed her home with 20 rounds, shooting Brianna eight times, killing her in bed. There's, um, I mean, if you're not familiar with this, please, please, please read more. It's just, it, it didn't get enough attention when it happened. They've uh, finally arrested one of the officers, but there were many involved. There's more justice to be served. Go to justiceforbriana.org um, to sign petitions, to donate, to learn more. Beyond that, I wanted to highlight that specific um, uh, d- the specific line about Brianna that Rachel Cargill and Lynn Manuel Miranda uh, highlighted because it's just it's one of those things where when you think about who lives, who dies, who tells your story, when you think about legacy when you think about the line that they called out but when you're gone who remembers your name who keeps your flame who tells your story and these are the stories these are the names these are the the this is why when you know i've in especially recent months seen calls to action about the importance of saying victims names saying them out loud is so incredibly important you know whether back to to trayvon martin Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, Tatiana Jefferson, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, the, the people who, are, who die too young from something that is rooted in racism and racial injustice or by the hands of the law enforcement that's supposed to protect them. It's up to us to, to tell their story. I just, I don't know. I feel like listening to a lot of this music in the times we're in now, it just takes on a whole new meaning. And I encourage people to lean into that because it it's important because when we think of our life, our death, our legacy. We're thinking of ourselves so far from now, right? Most people are. But when the time comes and there is a sense, a loss of control, what do we, the people that survive others, do with their stories? And how do we do better, make the world better, and make sure they're not forgotten? And I think it's a really important piece of this to think about outside of just who lives, who dies, who tells your story, but who lives, who dies, who tells the stories of those who unfairly lost their life and the very least we can do is not allow them to lose their legacy. Uh, the Again, at Rachel Cargill, H-R-A-C-H-E-L dot C-A-R-G-L-E. She's a fantastic activist to follow. If you do not already, that is who did the collaboration with Lin-Manuel Miranda that you should certainly go through in addition to her program, The Great Unlearn. Uh, what were we talking about? I don't know. We'll go. <laughs> I'm sure I'll repeat myself plenty of times. But yes, Alexander, what we learn in this song is one thing that I think is incredibly important, that um, Alexander holds himself to these broader arbitrary themes of, uh, of, of legacy. He, he romanticizes dying and martyrdom. He, he himself is defined by so little. He tries to be defined by too much, forgetting the, the small things that actually impact your life and the people around you and uh, i don't know it's it's also there's a, a theme of control too like burr is so controlled he is the one thing in life i he can control alexander has such a loss of control of ever everything's ever happened to him he's just like in a race for what's inevitably going to be his his, his doom him perishing you know he just kind of assumes the worst i'd imagine this hugely impacts how you move forward in your life and perhaps what i'm misunderstanding is narcissism is a lot more to do with you know something far more uh deep and, and less like dismissive as a personality trait but i just think that 
he th- th- so many of the things that would actually make him reliable and loyal and loving to the people that supported him, he forewent in favor of more what I'd argue are narcissistic virtues of per- perceived honor, of of infamy, uh, of power, of historical importance. Um, none of these things. These things affect how everybody who doesn't know you perceives you and have very little to do with how the people who love you perceive you. Yeah, this is just food for thought for the intro. Uh, The different themes will continuously come back to. And uh, the other thing, too, to think about that I think this the first two songs set up well between Alexander Hamilton and my shot. Everything ends up where it starts. Like he's not throwing away his shot. He dies with the shot. Um, Burr starts like by saying like i will wait for it only ultimately to not wait for it and for that to define his legacy um the where he got off the island because of a hurricane and he rode his way out of an actual hurricane when it destroyed his town when he finds himself in a moral hurricane and one the one of the few times that truly compromises his honor uh in a life-altering way he tries to write himself out of a hurricane once again, um, showing that people never really change, but sometimes remaining true to yourself isn't necessarily succumbing to your own worst habits. Um, not that him writing his way out is a bad habit, but that that was not the right call in that situation, at least I don't think with the Reynolds pamphlet, but we'll get into that later. Everything is intertwined. Everything is a double meaning. Everything comes up more than once. And beyond that, I am probably in act two more. So I want to get into who I think really emerges as the ultimate protagonist, which is Eliza. And what I think incorporates a third really interesting theme here, not just those who, you know, step on toes and are, you know, maniacally ambitious in an effort to make up for something versus those who kind of sit pretty in their privilege and feel like they have something to protect and they're on the defense and offense, but then you know, in terms of the Burr Hamilton dynamic, but Eliza, I think, is an interesting example of somebody who kind of stayed in the background in more of a support role in the way many women did. And her being left out of the story in Act One, I think, is like more symbolic than anything of um, her kind of withdrawing from the narrative to a degree in an effort to support her husband to angrily remove herself from the narrative as we see powerfully in Burn to ultimately have to replace herself and take over the narrative and be responsible for her husband's entire legacy that he fought for and neglected her in order to attain. Just to take like 12 steps back, a couple of things I didn't say again, I promise we'll, we'll, we'll move through it. The intro and setup is always the hardest. So as we know, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote this. He also did In the Heights, which is an incredibly popular Tony Award winning. This isn't his first rodeo. He originally wrote Hamilton, like he was thinking of it as a concept album, if you uh, if you stop everything and watch the 2009 White House Poetry Slam of where he only has one song and you're watching history in the making as he like enthusiastically recites and and, and spit enunciates and blows us all away, so to speak, um, with his title song, Alexander Hamilton in front of the president. It's 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 a moment and it's important. And I love being a part of watching something somebody does when they don't even know what it's going to be yet. It's incredibly powerful and it's important for I, I like to visit those things when I need to be inspired. Anyway, I was trying to give context. I forgot. It's based off of Ron Chernow's biography. Uh, the best way I've seen it position that kind of doesn't do it justice is to think of it as fanfic because it's not 
like I think I said this earlier, it's not educational. It's not really about Hamilton, but it's about what his life legacy or lack thereof means. What about this life and striving for legacy and striving for purpose for contribution? All of these things that we think allegedly make us great, but if we sacrifice all of those in our immediate life to do so, does that make us good? We all take different approaches to ultimately get to the same stoplight. But okay, I'm going to try I'm going to use like five second clips. Please, please, please don't come after me. Disney, Lynn, whoever, um, because it kind of like help. I think it helps you like get in the mode for those of you familiar with it. Um, in terms of what I'm, t- I won't talk about every song. There's 46 songs, but just in terms of the ones I think are key drivers in both summarizing it and telling you what I think are like some important takeaways. So, uh, yeah, sorry, <laughs> moving on. Well, Alexander Hamilton, my Aaron Burser, and my shot are kind of this arc of Alexander arrives from St. Croix. You know, he wrote, writes his way out, put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain, and he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his name. Um, so he's writing about his his pain, and people recognize that. That potential gives him to New York. He writes his way out. He shows up. You know, we we see the excitement, aggression, the young, scrappy, and hungry uh, version of Alex that is both precocious and aggressive, but also knows very little and is getting a bit ahead of himself. He sizes up Burr's education. We see the chip on his shoulder already starting to form. But all the same, when he meets his uh, three friends, we see that he, um, you know, is he's not fundamentally unlikable and disagreeable. It's specifically the nature of Burr that he immediately is at direct odds with. Um, So we meet his uh, friends in Aaron Burser, Lawrence Mulligan, Marquita Lafayette. They are having drinks. And uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote my shot. It took a year because he wanted it needed to be it needed to encompass so much about who he was, his ambition, um, his you know, position on the revolution. He did incorporate the other guys. And basically from meeting the guys in Aaron Burser to the end of my shot, Lynn is trying to communicate the quote, I believe a tweet of Lin-Manuel's that I wrote down or something. Um, he needed to, to prove that Alexander Hamilton's intellect was to be feared in the room. To show up as like a teenager, you know, an immigrant from an island with no education, you know, and to establish yourself as a person who is eligible to be, you know, working with George Washington to be at the forefront of the revolution. I mean, the, what my shot is to communicate is a tall order. And I that I focus on a lot in the Patreon episode that if I I could spend forever on. Um, but uh, I'm actually going to kind of breeze past it a little more than I usually would, because I think that there's certain lyrics I'll point out and uh, obviously the broader metaphorical meaning, but I actually do want to press forward because it's easy to get hung up there. But I'm getting ahead of myself talking about the first three songs. Let's take a step back, go to Aaron Burser, and we'll keep cruising. So upon arrival, well, in, in the musical, this is where he meets his his pals. Burr, Hercules Mulligan, Marquis de Lafayette, John Lawrence. Pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? That depends. Who's asking? Oh, sure. Sir, I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm at your service, sir. I have been looking for you. Again, just setting the stage with very small clips. I'm so scared. Uh, Okay, and the other thing I think is funny about the song, I just have to say really fast, I feel like this entire song was written around Lin-Manuel's realization when he wrote the words Burr, comma, sir, that it also is the same as Burser. So he, like, wrote in a thing about how Alex punched the Burser 
almost uh, as a means to illustrate his precocious aggression at the onset. Sir, I heard your name at Princeton. I was seeking an accelerated course of study. When I got sort of out of sorts with a buddy of yours, I may have punched him. It's a blur, sir. He handles the financials. You punched the bursar. Yes, I wanted to do what you did graduate. I, I don't know. I just love the energy in this song. We establish that they're both orphans. This is also where we meet uh, his other cronies that he's not at odds with. His close friends, John Lawrence, Hercules Mulligan, and Marquis de Lafayette. Marquis de Lafayette is also an immigrant from France. Hercules Mulligan is a tailor. John Lawrence is a lifelong abolitionist. And I actually don't know much about his background other than I was surprised his last name wasn't Lawrence. Like the Lawrence brothers, it's Lauren. Like, hey, I'm Lauren. Like a millennial, you know? <laughs> Lawrence, rather. Uh, but anyway... Here we establish that they're both orphans, which is thematically important because it, it, it they start out with a, a clear similarity, right? Um, they're both ambitious men who want to live a life of honor and purpose with two very different methodologies. Alexander has cheated death so many times already in his young life. He's, what, like 18 at this point? He almost approaches life as my mere existence is happenstance my life is an accident like i shouldn't be here no so many other people i've been around have not made it therefore i almost am obligated to make something of myself i i must i, I strive for purpose and whereas burr is um he establishes at some point i don't think it's in this song he's an orphan but his parents died everyone around him has died if there's a reason that he's still alive and everyone who's loved him has died his philosophy is he wants to wait for it, which we find out in the song, wait for it. He has a much more tentative uh, existence. He's more malleable. He he sits back. He waits. He's he's He believes fools who run their mouth off to wind up dead. So we set the stage here of him being like Hamilton, piped down. Hamilton's like, I wish there was a war that, you know, he's like all jacked up. So the other dudes enter. Another thing I love about this song is this kind of... Uh, as if it weren't already established in the title song, Alexander Hamilton. There are many lines in the song that establish Lynn's uh, penchant for assonant vowels, meaning the same vowel sounds used over and over that he uses in words in combination with like phrases and compound words and also individualized words. I break down his rhyme scheme and writing style more in the Patreon episode um, because it's getting pretty granular. But an example of this is with Hercules Mulligan. When he says, lock up your daughters and horses, of course, it's hard to have intercourse over four sets of corsets. I like I just got really excited. Um, so we have horse horses, of course, it's intercourse, four sets, corsets like these. These are the things that blow my mind, like the the, the ability to story tell and to use to exercise all of these um literary devices if you will is is just like so incredibly impressive so we then launch into my shot it took Lin-Manuel Miranda a year to write this song is so important for so many reasons not only stating his ambition and his plans um to go to King's College but it also kind of sets up uh the stance of the revolution their stance as patriots um and beyond that is a major metaphor throughout the trajectory of the musical, which is the concept of not throwing away your shot, which we all know Hamilton ultimately ironically throws away his shot during the duel when he puts his gun up at the sky, where Burr waits his whole life, never taking his shot, not bullishly going for anything because he believes in 
taking a safe route because he's cheated de- death, unlike the rest of his family. And Alexander is always going for his shot because he doesn't want to throw away it because he's cheated death from everyone around him dying. These two different approaches. The ultimate irony is at the end in the duel, Alexander throws away his shot. Burr doesn't. Burr shoots Alex, ultimately defining their legacy by the inverse personality traits that they were both known for. It's truly fascinating. And it's a beautiful motif that carries through for some historical context here. Um, just because, I don't know, I don't know if this is, like, helpful whatsoever, but we're on the precipice of the Revolutionary War. We have 13 colonies. Um, uh, we are trying to be independent from Britain. And we have the Loyalists, like Samuel Seabury, who are loyal to Great Britain, and we have the Patriots, who want to be free. And while their historical inaccuracy is aplenty in this, I, I've, like I said earlier, it's not, I don't think it's supposed to be a biopic. It's a, it's a broader series of lessons about who lives, who dies, who tells your story, about legacy, about an immigrant's story, about, I, I think it's more about the people he lives in his wake through his decision making and loyalty to the Republic over the loyalty to the people in his life. But again, we'll get to that later. Um, Because the the two people that were most affected by him, Burr and Eliza, and how their entire lives and legacies were defined by Alex, even though he was the first to go. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, I feel okay. So I'm going to try to I'm not going to harp on every single song, but I do think there's things in my shot worth calling out. It's I mean, it's just it's a it's a work of art. It really is. Um, So we get into more about the revolution. Um, we're meant to be a colony that runs independently. Meanwhile, Britain keeps shitting on us endlessly. Essentially, they tax us relentlessly. King George turns around, runs a spending spree. He ain't ever going to set his descendants free, so there will be a revolution in the century. Um, and then we enter Mulligan, Lawrence Lafayette, kind of stating their stance, you know, Lafayette dreaming of life without a monarchy, the unrest in France lead to anarchy, um mulligan's a tailor's apprentice um <laughs> he's joining the rebellion because i know it's my chance to socially advance instead of sewing some pants i just can't um so and then we establish that lawrence um is an abolitionist will never be truly free until those in bondage have the same rights as you and me you and i do or die wait till i sally in on a stallion with the first black battalion um oh my god do you guys have goosebumps am i <laughs> i know i'm saying this so fast but i'm like oh my god how am i ever gonna get through this but I say this because then these so these guys are all like jacked up for the revolution. And then, of course, we have Burr who comes in and he's like, geniuses, lower your voices. You keep out of trouble and you double your choices. I'm with you, but the situation is fraught. You've got to be carefully taught. If you're taught, if you talk, you're going to get shot. Um, so I am a bit of a Burr apologist. I understand his I, I think that uh, this story is largely meant for us to reconsider his plight, his story and how. His side of things isn't wrong, but the winners write history, right? Um, and I think that the more you learn about Burr, and he's humanized later on in Act 1 through Wait For It and through Dear Theodosia, you kind of understand him a little bit better. Even at, at the very last minute before he shoots Hamilton, um, he's, when he's like, I will not make an orphan of my daughter, he's actually always thinking about somebody else. And he's maybe not the perennial narcissist uh, Hamilton is. <laughs> so, okay, I'll get through the song. But, I mean, I think that one of my favorite parts is um, 
where he gets too excited and then like catches himself getting too excited. I relate to this wholeheartedly. Um, Bird, check out what we got. Mr. Lafayette, Hard Rock, like Lance a lot. I think your pants look hot. Lawrence, I like you a lot. Let's hatch a plot blacker than the cattle call in the pot. What are the odds? The gods would put us all in one spot. Pop in a squad and conventional wisdom. Like it or not, a bunch of revolutionary manumission abolitionists. Give me a position. Show me where the ammunition is. Um, and obviously that is lyrical perfection. But then he's like, oh, am I talking too loud? Sometimes I get overexcited, shoot off at the mouth. I've never had a group of friends before. I promise that I'll make y'all proud. This is where I really empathize with young Alex. And I just really like his ambition is admirable. He has big dreams. And, you know, after talking to Burr, who has this education, who has a panache, who has citizenship, uh, you kind of see the dichotomy, too, of like, okay, of of um, a person, uh, two people who thematically have something similar, being orphans. Yet Burr is coming from money, from education, from status, from citizenship. Alexander is an immigrant who has no money, no education, no family, no nothing. Alexander operates working from almost a negative integer. Burr has an existing level of privilege. I think looking at this scrappiness from that standpoint is important too. Not everybody has the luxury of waiting for it, right? Um. So as we go through my shots, we're getting amped up uh, for the revolution. And he talks about more historical context about, you know, whatever. My shot is a work of art. Uh, we go into the story of tonight. They get drunk. They talk more about the revolution. And then we are introduced to the lovely women of Hamilton, Angelica, Eliza and Peggy. They're the daughters of Philip Schuyler, who is a well-to-do man. They are members of society. They are wealthy. They're not depicted accurately. There was a lot of Schuyler children, and like Angelica was married when they met Alexander. But hey, it's a better story this way. I've heard Lynn talk about wanting them to be like Destiny's Child vibes, which, you know, I'm here for. Did I have also said, forgot to say earlier, I've read a lot of different analyses that imply that, so John Lawrence was like one of the most important intimate friendships that alexander hamilton had um and the only song that's not on the cast album is the one spoiler alert uh, press the 15 to 30 second ahead button if you don't hear this um the one where uh lawrence dies and i think that's interesting and telling and i was reading that even this this uh, statement in my shot lawrence i like you a lot is like supposed to be a wink to them having a more intimate relationship and apparently on i need to watch for this but they like go off together on stage i don't remember that but again nosebleeds just something to keep in mind okay so going into the schuyler sisters i just love them so much this establishes kind of who they are their character their vibe it establishes angelica as being a very well-versed uh peer in terms of her ability to discuss politics she's looking for a mind at work she's been reading common sense by thomas Paine. some men might think she's intense or insane you want a revolution she wants a revelation she's very into the thought and she was considered to be the muse of of many great thinkers of that time she was very well known allegedly she when thomas uh jefferson was off getting high with the french she was one of the people he hung out with i love the way women are being put at the center of this narrative pretty early on despite them being completely erased from it historically I love the showcasing of an intellectual female who's very interested to talk policy. I love the juxtaposition of looking for a mind at work and how they're saying work. Um, I mean, it's just you, you fall in love with them. So the guys Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy, the Skyless 
I'd like to formally start the hashtag justice for Peggy um, <laughs> effort. I, I'm, a, I'm a total Peggy. I'm just like, I don't know. I'm here. I, I'm the youngest. I'm just like, I'm Peggy. I feel like I want to be the Angelicas of the world. I lack the compassion of an Eliza. I just feel like I'm a, a chatty third party. Um, also, Peggy's of the world. My heart goes out to you because I'm at the disconnect between the the name Margaret and Peggy to me is very confusing. Um, I'd be interested to hear more. So we establish who they are, the money they come from. Next, we have Samuel Seabury, a loyalist. The, this the song Farmer Refuted is such a skip. Like it's my least favorite song, but I was laughing because uh, the on the uh, Hamilton PowerPoint, two lovely listeners, Jordan and Alec, were arguing for it being a very good karaoke song for true Hamill fans to try to like match the dueling manner in which this is sung, which I respect and honestly might argue that's the mark of a true fan being able to see the, you know, caliber that lies within Farmer Refuted, because I would refute anyone typically that says that they like this song, yet they made a good argument. Basically, what's happening here is that after um, the Continental Congress, uh, Seabury, who, like I said, is a loyalist, he was trying to uh, reach out to farmers and warn them against the revolution. Um because they would be the ones that that suffered if there's a trade boycott um, with the British. And this is one of the first times Hamilton writes like he's running out of time. He pushes back on Seabury by uh, with a 35 page essay. It's called a full a full vindication of the measures of the Congress. And Seabury rebuts full vindication. And then Hamilton strikes back with the farmer refuted, which is an 80 page response, which asserted the need for unity to resist British oppression. So this is kind of setting the stage for the loyalist and patriots being at odds. And then we have the first entry point of King George, who is played in the original cast by the uh, the wonderful, the talented, the unmatched, uh, a man with devilishly handsome, good looks, but a pink cheeked youthfulness known to Lynn as Groff sauce, Jonathan Groff. I I love him. I love him so much. And he's so good at King George. So, Rory was very good at King George, too. Um, the original King George, what's this guy's name? He almost looks like Eugene Levy. Anyway, back to Groff. Um, so King George comes in singing a full on like Beatles monkey style. You'll be back track. Actually, Lynn prefers the monkeys to the Beatles. So I think technically this is supposed to be a monkeys driven track. KG3, King George III, we all know. What did he do? He put taxes on tea. Oh, shit. It's just like such a funny thing when you think about it. Obviously, he put taxes on other things like whiskey. This song is like laugh out loud funny. It's catchy. It's like da-da-da-da-da. It's, it's like, I don't even know. It's the audience like laughs out loud. It's the juxtaposition of the very dark and sinister message of this man with tremendous power paired with the upbeat uh, like oldies melody of like nostalgia is so interesting. And Lynn has talked about before how the characters that were supposed to be like out of touch are meant to have musical styles that are more dated than the more modern hip hop uh, rap R&B style. And King George being like a beetle or a monkey relative to the, I believe the rap era Lynn was in in act one was largely like 80s, early 90s. Um, I think is purposeful. And uh, basically, it's saying you'll be back. Like, good luck with this. The, the 
British, the colonists are against incredible odds. I mean, they're against the monarchy. They're against like the, a, it's kind of wild when you think about the historical context of it, um, that they are one of the most powerful forces in the world. And up until that point, I don't know, I don't think any other colonies had broken off, um, like globally, I mean, in terms of becoming a sovereign state. And uh, he's basically like, you'll be back. Time will tell. Uh, you'll remember that I served you well. Oceans rise, empires fall. We'll have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. That's one of the first times I heard the audience like burst out with laughter. Okay, so for our second and final sponsor for this episode, as discussed previously in my uh, being the annoying girl in English class, I'm also the girl that like did red spark notes, you know, I'm here for a shortcut. I'm here for efficiency. I'm not always doing the right thing. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy. And even if I try to like eat kale and whatnot um, or drink a green smoothie, I don't know. I have a lot of food allergies. I'm it's hard for me to get essential nutrients I need on a daily basis. And Ritual is the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Their essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food, especially not me, um, all in their clean, absorbable forms. And there are no shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm to your body than good. So it's too easy to take capsules that provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. I am new to Ritual and... Like I said, I just I have a long history of being very um, I'm not the healthiest eater. I have a lot of allergies and it's hard for me to feel like I'm getting the nutrients I need. And that paired with how much I like work and talk. I don't know. I'm forever on a quest to to simply feel better and to have the knowledge that I'm getting what I need. And um, Ritual is designed for women and it's kind of a multivitamin that's reimagined. And uh, from D3 to omega-3, the Ritual Essential for Women vitamin helps fill gaps in a woman's diet. They have a no-nausea capsule design that's gentle on an empty stomach. There's a mint tab in every bottle to keep things fresh, which I think is really cool. So you don't get that fishy, like, kind of aftertaste that's common with omega-3s. For obsessive label readers, their vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, allergen-free ingredients are there for the whole world to see. And in, literally in a clear capsule, and it's a d- uh, subscription delivery service. And um, you can start it, you can snooze it. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month. So, better health does not happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash be there in five to start your ritual today. That is 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash be there in five spelled just how the show is spelled. Thank you so much to Ritual for sponsoring this episode. Okay, something somebody pointed out to me about the next song, Right Hand Man. Um, okay, this is where we're introduced to George Washington. He's allegedly introduced like a pro wrestler, which is very different from like, let's say later how Thomas Jefferson is introduced. I read that this was supposed to be in terms of uh, Alexander Hamilton's perception, like the way he revered George Washington versus him not being like utterly impressed with Thomas Jefferson, because even if somebody's a name, the integrity matters to Alex. You can keep calling him Alex um, as if he's like Nikki and Alex, the house twins. Um, but uh, Thomas Jefferson like did, he like was chilling in France. He missed the entire war. Alex like didn't respect him and wasn't that impressed by him. And when he was immediately came over and was appointed secretary of state, he was kind of like, what the hell? 
but at that point, Thomas Jefferson wasn't like widely credited with like penning the Declaration of Independence. He allegedly did that later for his own political gain. So he wasn't like, I don't know, I guess he wasn't meant to seem impressive on purpose in the second act, whereas George Washington, I feel like, is really built up. Listen. My God, I love Chris Jackson, Chris Jackson, the person who originally plays George Washington. Um, if you want to cry like a baby, watch him sing one last time in front of Obama. <sighs> right before he left office, it's about George Washington leaving office. It's truly it's truly emotional. Um, the, the, he and Lynn are like the best of friends. And when Lynn gets drunk on the Hamilton uh, drunk history on Comedy Central, Lynn gets drunk, FaceTimes Chris. And he's like, as long as I have a job, you have a job. As long as I have a job, you have a job. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's so sweet. Because I feel that way about so many people. Like, you know what I mean? It's like there's just a difference between the people that vaguely an- support you in an ancillary manner when it's convenient and the people that like wholeheartedly believe in you. And like those are the people that you will never ever like you'll make sure they never suffer or never you know if like you have means they have means you can only dream of doing that someday also if this episode gets taken down and moved to patreon you know why it's because something i got spooked with the music <laughs> i'm not doing that many songs stride <laughs> stride is at the mood guys trying to add hype subscribe to disney plus maybe i'm driving more revenue than i'm taking um so basically george washington needs a right hand man um, somehow George is aware of Hamilton and pursues him. But Hamilton, despite revering Washington, is like not that pumped. He wants to fight. He's like all he's ever done is like written feverishly, but he wants to like be on the front lines. He really dreams of of, of being a martyr to which at one point George says dying is easy. Young man living is harder. Burr like tries to kind of swoop in. Washington's basically like, don't hit your head on the way out. The, establishing more attention of Hamilton kind of coming out of nowhere and getting like a prestigious job. Hamilton wants to fight. He wants him to be a secretary. I, I, the, he talks about his friends um, like, what does he say? Like, you need all the help you can get. I have some friends, Lawrence Mulligan, Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, and they're talking about how they're outgunned, out planned outnumbered wait they're outgunned outmanned outnumbered outplanned so this is a war i call these war songs this battle of yorktown guns and ships there's so much happening and there's so many motifs that come into play like for example here in this song the in the background you keep hearing rise up and that's uh something that he kept saying in my shot they say rise up when they want to elicit certain emotions similar to how they say like he'll consistently bring up not throwing away your shot or tell lawrence not to throw away his shot how eliza will constantly bring up the notion of of helpless um about them saying that would be enough history has its eyes on you satisfaction of uh uh, in terms of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten dual commandments, and Philip Schuyler being associated with playing piano and counting with his mom, who dies in a duel, ten dual commandments, setting up that. So, like, the, this is how musicals work. They associate certain sounds and motifs with certain emotions to connect certain people and characters. So both the the melody and the lyrics are. It's so hard to be collectively exhaustive in a work of art like this, and. It's just as important to incorporate words, symbols, themes, motifs that are able to storytell implicitly as they are explicitly through lyrics. 
Okay, we're at a winter's ball. Oh, wait, no, this is the song where it gets a little pervy. Um, okay, the other thing, too, that frustrates me, and I know I'm sure I said this in the deep dive on Patreon if you listen to it, but um, it's called A Winter's Ball. And later in Helpless, Eliza says we were at a revel with some rebels on a hot night. I'm like, no, no, it was cold. So Winter's Ball. Anyway, um, that that's important. So uh, Burr starts this with the same tune of how does a bastard orphan son of a whore go on and on, grow into more of a phenomenon, watch this obnoxious, arrogant, loudmouth father be seated at the right hand of the father. Um, and I think in this case, he means right hand of the father of the most eligible ladies in town we established in the Schuyler sisters, Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy. Um, this is where they're like kind of gross, like burrs, like ladies, too many to deflower, looks proximity to power, which is important in terms of what people's priorities were like, yeah, looks, but also how close are they to powerful people? Um, this is 1780 and Burr's like, it, if you can marry a sister, you're rich, you're rich son. And Hamilton says, it's not a question of if Burr or which one. Or is it a question of if Burr or which one? I'm like, Ugh, come on. And then we go into Helpless. So this is to set up how Eliza falls for Hamilton. I think it's very interesting how Eliza is kind of, she's like, she she's not as analytic as they portray Angela when she rewinds back to satisfied or rewinds back to this helpless moment during satisfied Eliza's more so like sweet and swooning and I think it's interesting that her first uh, lines in her first solo song helpless um it starts with I have never been the type to try and grab the spotlight please skip ahead if you don't want spoilers I don't know why I don't know I don't even know what what I'm doing um but at the end of the play musical who is there? Eliza, who emerges as the protagonist. Eliza, who is standing in a spotlight, thus grabbing it. Eliza. She's never been the type to try and grab the spotlight, but she ultimately finds herself there. More on that later. So this song is so sweet. I love it. It's, it really has grown on me, too. Um, what did Lynn compare this song to? Shoot. Was this? Oh, the one. Oh, well, and the Hamilton mixtape it was redone by Ashanti and Ja Rule. I'm going to talk about the mixtape later, too. This is not efficient. <laughs> I hope you guys are having fun. I just don't know. Um, OK, so what I was saying is uh, Eliza's kind of laughing at her sister. She's dazzling the room. Um, she's trying to catch his eye. She's t like uh, has a more subtle approach. Her sister makes her way across the room. She grabs her arm. She introduces her to Alex. She's helpless. Um, Angelica's like, I'm about to change your life. And Hamilton's like, by all, way, by all means, lead the way. And uh, Eliza and Alex meet. They write letters nightly. Now her life gets better every letter that you write me, which is foreshadowing for the song Later Burn. I hate this line, laughing at my sister because she wants to form a harem. I'm just saying, if you really loved me, you would share them. I struggle with this. I love Angelica and I love Eliza. But I do not get having the hots for your sister's husband. And I do not get how you can be considered a loyal, trusting sister who also kind of creeps, you know, behind her back. Like at the end, Angelica comes out, you know, like, I'm not here for you. I'm here for Eliza. And we love her for that. But also, 
I just still don't like the even like letter exchange between them and stuff. It makes me uncomfortable. I just cannot imagine creeping on Kelly's man. <laughs> Anyways, I, I love a song helpless. So we establish uh, Eliza and Hamilton being very swept up with each other and Angelica actually being the first one to meet him. At this point, Hamilton's like 25 with with him now being on Washington's staff, despite not having a dollar to his name, an acre of land or troop to command all he had on his honor is tolerance for paying a couple of college credits and his top-notch brain. Um, he was able to run in powerful circles and married the wealthy daughter of a powerful New York senator because he was associated with Washington. Um, we now go into Satisfied. So now they're getting married. Angelica's giving a toast. And in a brilliant sequence of, sequence of events where she starts giving the toast... We then hear the chorus singing Rewind and the Lazy Susan turntable that the stage is made of that you'll see in the performance that if you want more context, patreon.com slash be there in five. A wonderful listener named Tara um, gave us more context behind the set design because she used to be a stage tech. Uh, the the turntable, the Lazy Susan, if you will, I don't know what to call it reverses and we reverse back to a winter's ball that night when angelica met alexander and this is where we hear alexander angelica's kind of retroactive description of meeting alex and her being attracted to him and all of the thought processes she goes through in deciding to ultimately give him to her sister who became his bride um, I think this is a this is top five, top three favorite song. This song is perfect. I love it so much. I went to ensemble sing at karaoke sometime with somebody who really knows it in front of a crowd that gets it. I've never ventured into satisfied. Um, it is it is right. It is tight. It is sharp. It is on point. It is dynamic. It's future. It's backward. It incorporates so many different motifs already in the play. It establishes the difference between Eliza and um, Angelica further. Like I said, in the Schuyler sisters, Angelica is really, um, she was looking for a mind at work. She is depicted more as Hamilton's intellectual match. And even just the notion of how Eliza approaches helpless. She's just kind of like, uh, you walked in and my heart went boom, trying to catch your eye on the side of the ballroom, whatever. She's just helpless. She kind of swoons. Angelica, in meeting Alexander, conversely goes through this incredibly analytic process of sizing him up not only how he looks and acts where's his family's from his eligibility she's sharp and the thing i mean like i just want you to listen to this song i don't know anything about music i think it's important to listen to this song and to listen to the uh, the, the perfection that the, the I, I don't even understand Renee Elise Goldsberry, who plays Angelica. Also, I should be saying the names of the actors. I'm sorry. I haven't been. Uh, there's so much here. Um, they're all incredible. I talked about Chris Jackson, I guess. Um, Davi Diggs is unmatched. Uh, I love Anthony Ramos, who plays John Lawrence, who's dating, engaged to Jasmine Cephas, who plays Peggy and Mariah Reynolds in real life. Um, obviously, Oak of Hercules Mulligan. He has one of the greatest lines in the entire play. I love him. Um, and Philippa Sue is perfection. I love them all. I have, I, have, I have nothing but glowing things to say. Well, I guess first. Okay, so the tra- the transition from a winter's ball, helpless, sat- satisfied, 
story of tonight. It's it's one of the most perfect sequences I've ever seen in musical theater. Again, not an expert. Don't be mad at me. Um, but truly, the the lyrical tie-ins, the cadence of events, the telling it through Eliza's eyes and then rewinding to tell it through Angelica's eyes, the distinction of the, the, the character setup they portray here and the way they kind of distinct they they make angelica seem more like alexander's match yet distinguish her in one very distinct and important way both alexander and angelica will never be satisfied the the concept of satisfaction runs throughout this entire musical and is one i could talk about at great length i well i feel like my uh people-pleasing tendencies are more like burr i feel like the way i work and write and um uh never satisfied is is more a dot ham i i work like i'm running out of time because i never get anywhere in my career and i feel like i'm literally running out of time i am working against my own biological clock and i am determined to not have kids until i actually feel like i've like done something but then like i will lie awake at night and i'm like will i ever feel like i've done something because i've technically done a lot but i feel like i've done nothing do i have an issue with satisfaction these are the existential questions hamilton helps us work through and why i love it so much um but what I mean by that one distinction, they're both never satisfied. They're both intellectual peers. They both go tit for tat. Um, but Angelica is different from Hamilton because Angelica sacrifices what she needs for her sister. She is a more selfless person. Alexander is is all, all he cares about is himself. He does what he wants, what he needs. He's never satisfied any bulldozes people in his path to get what he wants. Angelica, while I'm, her character is not perfect and her character is completely manufactured by Lin-Manuel Miranda, mind you, she... Angelica, the sister, I don't think was that essential in the relationship of Alex and Eliza, despite the letter with the comma, which we'll get to. Um, so, yeah, Angelica, even though I said earlier this frustrates me, this is distinguishing because she does always end up showing up for her sister. And you hear her go three fundamental rules in terms of her analysis of sizing up why she can't be with Alexander. This rapping and rhyming is out freaking standing. Um, so she says, so this is what it feels like to match wits with someone at your level. What the hell is the catch? It's the feeling of freedom of seeing the light. It's Ben Franklin with a key and a kite. You see it right. The conversa conversation lasted two minutes, maybe three minutes. Everything we said in total. It's a dream and it's a bit of a dance. It's a bit of a posture. It's a bit of a stance. He's a bit of a flirt, but I'm going to give him a chance. I asked about his family. Did you see his answer? His hands started fidgeting. He looks. Uh, he looked askance. He's penniless. He's flying by the seat of his pants. Handsome. Boy, does he know it. Peach fuzz. He can't even grow it. I want to take him far away from this place. And I turn and see my sister's face and she is helpless. So this is where she's tying back to the moment helpless started when Eliza is talking about her seeing Hamilton for the first time. And we walk through again him uh, angelica introducing her so um the three she realizes three fundamental truths at the exact same time as to why she she needs to give him to eliza um there's a lot of examples of that uh those assonant vowel, vowel sounds that i'm obsessed with in this song i talk about this on patreon too bless your heart if you've listened to both i don't i i didn't even listen back to my deep dive it's a year old so who knows even if um, my mind has changed since then that's the beautiful part about art. It, depending on where you are in your life and how you've evolved, do you see things totally differently? There's there are no static opinions of art in my book. Also, I'm really sorry if me reading off the lyrics quickly is annoying, but you guys know I can't play the full songs. I'd get in so much trouble. Um, so there's three fundamental rules. Basically, she first says that 
she's a girl in a world in which her only job is to marry rich. Her father has no son, so she's the one who has to social climb for one. She's the oldest and the wittiest, and the gossip in New York City is insidious, and Alexander is penniless. Ha, that doesn't mean I want a manyless. Um, secondly, he's after me because I'm a Skylar sister that elevates his status. I'd have to be naive to set that aside. Maybe that is why I introduced Eliza. Now that's his bride. Nice going, Angelica. He was right. You'll never be satisfied. Um, those, that, those are those assonant noise I talked, assonant now, vowels I talked about. He's after me because I'm a Skylar sister that elevates his status. I'd have to be naive to set that aside. Maybe that is why I introduce him to Eliza. Now that's his bride. Nice going, Angelica. He was right. You will never be satisfied. This comes in to the next one, too. I know my sister like I know my own mind. You will never find anyone as trusting or as kind. If I tell her that I love him, she'd just be silently resigned. He'd be mine. She would say, I'm fine. She'd be lying. <sighs> you have goosebumps? I do. From all those eye sounds? Damn. That's the stuff. <laughs> so, holy crap. I got to get moving. Um, if you're a Hamilton, Hamilton fan, I don't need to tell you why satisfied is brilliant. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's true brilliance shines in this rewind sequence. His ability to write for dialogue, to have it move seamlessly into a rap sequence, then back to a normal, like, singing Broadway musical song. It's just, it's it's absolute perfection. And one thing I do want to point out, because I feel like most things people have, like, already said. Um, Actually, I mean, I know I've said this before, probably, but fun fact. Uh, my sister Kelly is also a Hamill stan. And in, at my wedding, I gave a speech to the guests. She gave a speech to me. We both wrote the speeches separately without hearing them first, obviously. And we both quoted that third rule. Um, she quoted, I know my sister like I know my own mind. You will never find anyone as trusting or as kind. I quoted um, that same line, but it, it, from its usage in the Reynolds pamphlet, Spoiler alert, skip ahead 15 if you don't want a spoiler, I guess. After Hamilton um, cheats on Eliza, Angelica comes back from London and she's pissed. And I desperately wish they included the original song, Congratulations, where she just straight up puts him in his place. More on that later. I keep saying more on that later. You've got to hold me accountable to these things. I'll say later. But Angelica says, I know my sister like I know my own mind. You will never find anyone as trusting or as kind. I love my sister more than anything in this life. I will choose her happiness over mine every time. Um, put what we had aside. I'm standing at her side. You could never be satisfied. God, I hope you're satisfied. The way she says, God, I hope you're satisfied. is just like, ugh, stick it to him. Um, anyways, I stopped after put her, choose her happiness over mine every time. Um, but anyways. A lot of Hamilton references at my wedding because it was 2017 and that's where we were in life. Okay, the last thing I need you to do, these are the small things I need you to pay attention to because Renee Elise Goldsberry, who plays Angelica, she's brilliant. She's so talented. She can sing. She can rap. The way she conveys emotion through the tone of her voice is unbelievable. I, I just think she is incredible. And um, I think it's really interesting. There's like subtleties you can hear from the first part of the toast to following the rewind so when she's giving the toast and like in her head she's supposed to be like regressing through the night she met alexander and uh, you know she's like uh i'll just play this part okay okay first i want you to listen to when she's snapping out of the dream sequence she's kind of realizing you know she's sacrificing something she wants for her sister um for what's better for her her family whatever her status um and so she's like a little sad. 
But so then she has to snap out of the dream sequence and then be like, to the groom. Um, I want you to listen to how she says to the groom, to the bride in this part. And then I'm going to play back to you the how she says it at the beginning. And I think this is like a subtlety that I guess like as a woman, I notice because I can tell tone of smiling against your will kind of or like fake smiling or like when you're like i'm fine i'm fine um i just know this all too well so listen to how she says to the groom to the bride and then we'll revisit how she said it initially when she was before she realized she would lose alex i just think this is like an important note at least i keep his eyes in my life Now listen to the way she first says it, and then I'm going to play that again. So I'm going to play the first to the groom to the bride, and then the groom to the bride after the dream sequence when she's like snapping out of um, longing for Alexander. A toast to the groom. To the groom. To the groom. To the groom. To the bride. To the bride. I wish I could sing so I could better illustrate, but like the sing songy clean to the groom at the beginning. Uh, then when you listen to the, to the groom, it's kind of like this. Yeah, it's yeah, it's fine to the groom. It's it's such a it's a voice you say with a very fake smile through your teeth. And I just like think that the the whiplash of emotions Renee Elise Goldsberry endures throughout the course of the song. She exhibits such control, but like still she's never at a loss for uh, impact. You know what? I, I don't know about musical terms for power, I guess. I, I just think she's unbelievable. And um, I don't know. I'm glad she won a Tony. This is one of my favorite songs ever. It's the, the craftsmanship of the song structurally, period, is brilliant. I love the way it sounds. I love the lyrics. I love the different styles. I, I you know, you guys know I live for a wedding toast. Um, I, I, I love a, a eulogy while one is still alive, and I just could not speak more highly of satisfied. I probably won't spend it this long on another song. So we move to the story of tonight. It's Alexander and his buddies getting drunk. This is another place where we're setting the stage for Burr's tentative nature. Um, they're kind of getting, like, psyched for the, you know, telling the story of tonight. Um, Alexander's like, why didn't you bring your girl with you? He said, I'm afraid it's unlawful. Uh, she's married to a British officer. And he says, congrats again, Alexander. Smile more. I'll see you on the other side of the war. War. Alexander says, I will never understand you. If you love this woman, go get her. What are you waiting for? He just says, I'll see you on the other side of the war. And, you know, so Hamilton says, what are you waiting for? This launches into Burr's plight, Burr's big ballad. A song that I think people kind of overlook, but I think this is also top three. Um, God, it's kind of hard to say what i it, it depends i like songs for different reasons i can't be forced to choose wait for it i do a pretty long analysis of on patreon i think um but i i just think this song's incredibly powerful um he talks about basically he talks through you know the girl he's with how if 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 so many have tried to be with her and he's the one She's with, he's willing to wait for it. He then talks through his parents um, that his, his mother was a genius. His father was a father and brimstone preacher. They both died. They left no instructions, just a legacy to protect. 
further establishing Burr as he's on defense. Alexander's on offense. Burr already has something he's fiercely protecting. Alexander has nothing he's fiercely working to get. Um, Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and we keep living anyway. We rise, rise and we fall and we break and we make our mistakes. And if there's a reason I'm still alive when everyone who loves me has died, I'm willing to wait for it. I am the one thing in life I can control. These two lines near bring me to tears even saying them. And I don't know why I love them so much, but I, I, um, these resonate with me so much. You've heard, I think I even did a whole segment of one episode where I like talked about how this song means a lot to me. I don't relate to all of Burr's plight, but I, I relate to needing to tell myself this when I'm going for something that's not happening or when I'm faced to make a decision where something is perhaps a better short, it's shinier short term but I need to wait for something bigger and better and long-term. And he says, I am the one thing in life I can control. I am inimitable. I am an original. Inimitable is one of the greatest words in the English language. I love it so much, but I think it's an important thing for us to just remember period in terms of um, the world being wide enough for everybody, right? One of the ultimate themes at the end of Hamilton they were so at odds and so focused on each other's differences and how they cited each other throughout time that they didn't take a minute to consider that the world was wide enough for them both. You are an imitable. You are an original. It is okay if you're different from somebody else. It is okay if you don't share the same disposition. And it's okay if not everybody respects it or understands that as long as you're not hurting anybody. Um, I'm an imitable. I am an original. I'm not falling behind or running late. I'm running late, let's be honest. I'm not standing still. I am lying in wait. Hamilton faces an endless uphill climb. He has something to prove. He has nothing to lose. Exactly. Hamilton's pace is relentless. He wastes no time. What is it like in his shoes? Hamilton doesn't hesitate. He exhibits no restraint. He takes and he takes and he takes and he keeps winning anyway. He changes the game. He plays and he raises the stakes. And if there's a reason he seems to thrive when so few survive, then God damn it. I'm willing to wait for it. I love the God damn it. I love the, I have goosebumps again. I love this song so much. Another thing that resonates with me is I, my, I identify with Hamilton in ambition, but burn demeanor. I'm not aggressive. I'm, I'm not going to cut you off, cut you in line. I'm not going to compete with you. I will stay back and wait for mine. I don't have any interest in stepping on toes. I just, but I felt like I've, I felt like I've missed out on a ton of opportunities from not being more aggressive in fear of what, because it's just not me like sometimes in life you probably do have to be more forward more aggressive you have to sell yourself harder and i just i'm not great at that and i feel like i'm i'm forever running behind because of it and i just kind of try to like wait in the wings and like see if i can build stuff on my own without like doing a lot of the things i see other people do and not that they're wrong it just doesn't feel natural to me and i feel like at this point in my life i try to uh default to uh who i am hopefully being the ultimate key to my success and not overextending myself to match how other people are in terms of what garners their success like i think we all i I genuinely believe on principle that um the the things that make us unique that make us inimitable are the the things that we have to leverage to be successful and when we find ourselves just trying to keep up with other people because on principle it seems like you have to do x to get y 
it, it doesn't land. Like that just never worked for me in life. And I'm speaking in huge generalities and for that, I'm sorry. Um, but I just, I relate to the frustration. It's like, I can at the same time be at peace with like who I am. Like he's like kind of starts a song with, if there's a reason, um, you know, I'm still alive when everyone who loves me has, has died, then I'm willing to wait for it. I am an original. I am an admittable. I'm the one thing in life I can control. But then he kind of gets worked up talking about Hamilton's disposition and, um, uh, you know, scrappiness, young, scrappy and hungry. He doesn't hesitate. He exhibits no restraint. He takes and he takes and he takes. And he's so frustrated with uh, the way um, Hamilton approaches things. And when you think about it, this is why I tend to side more with Burr. I think Hamilton has a better story in terms of ambition, in terms of making it. In terms of have you know coming from nothing, it's an incredible story of like you can you know if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Like he's an immigrant that completely is self-made and paves his own path, and it's like so inspirational in that sense. Um, but at the same time, he Alexander seeks satisfaction um, at the expense of others, right? Like he screws over everybody in his life leaving the rest of their lives defined by his anyway oh my god gotta move on i love wait for it it's like one of the best ballads i've ever heard okay so we move on to stay alive um this is setting up the i believe the battle of yorktown no the ten dual commandments um I'm going to I kind of will breeze through the war songs a little bit more. I think I my expertise is more in the personal interest stories, if I'm honest. But um, OK, so. Oh, yeah, by the way, Theodosia is Burr's. Girlfriend that is married to a British officer. Um, OK, stay alive. We're like, oh, yeah, we're still at war. Um, and Eliza's like, could you just stay alive? Uh, because that's kind of a theme. Like, he's managed to stay alive through plagues, through other deaths, through hurricanes, through a burning ship. Through, I mean, like, he uh, has had every chance to perish and has made it out on the other side. And Eliza wants to keep it that way. So the Patriot forces are, they're losing left and right. Congress has done nothing to support them. Um, Washington, so I don't, I don't remember at what point Hamilton's pissed that he promotes, Washington promoted Charles Lee. Hamilton's still not on the front lines. Um, Charles Lee then uh, questions Washington's authority. Hamilton's furious at at Lee even being in this position, and he's still like Washington's secretary or whatever. And um, he's turned down once again to be in combat. And this is where Lawrence goes to defend General Washington, challenging Charles Lee to a duel. This is where we get in the Ten Duel Commandments. Um, this is a pretty. I, I mean, I love this song. I don't want to like skip over it, but the the song rhythmically and lyrically uh is used when philip sky yeah wait no philip hamilton gets into a duel and again when alexander and aaron burr get into a duel um but i guess these lyrics are the rules of dueling which i know nothing about dueling and it seems insane but the ideal that like things are settled afterward is just so bizarre for me but apparently this was a popular way for 
I don't know, to end arguments. It's like, this is how you have to defend your honor, like by cash almost dying. It's insane. I think they were technically illegal, but not in New Jersey. And then they, that's when they make that dig later on. Everything is legal in New Jersey, which feels like an ill-timed joke right before Philip's death, but okie doke. Um, so also, if you listen to the soundtrack, like, you know, these plot lines, there, there's no dialogue in the play. It's just the songs. You only are missing one song. Um, so doctors would come to the duels and like turn their back, which I think I think they say that when during Hamilton and Burr's duel, which I thought was interesting. So they aren't like liable for what they saw. So Hamilton tells um, Lawrence not to throw away his shot. Then we go to meet me inside. He is pissed about the duel. Um, at this point, Hamilton's fed up and he's like, just does not want to be his secretary. And he really gets frustrated when Washington treats him with kind of like a paternal air. Which I think is interesting, too, given that I kind of thought he would want a father figure. But I think that he feels minimized and um, I don't know. I don't think I don't think Hamilton's vibe is to feel protected or less than he wants to. He's out for himself and maybe he's not used to that sort of um, gesture. Anyways. I kind of skipped over ten dual commandments. Basically, the the rules are number one: the challenge demands satisfaction. If they apologize, no need for further action. Are you kidding me? I would always apologize. I don't understand people that can't apologize. Just like say you're sorry and don't die. Maybe consider that other people love you. Um, number two: if they don't grab a friend, that's your second. Your lieutenant one. There's reckoning to be reckoned. Number three: have your seconds meet face to face, negotiate a peace, or negotiate a time and place. This is commonplace, especially. Between recruits, most disputes die and no one shoots. If they don't reach a peace, that's all right. Time to get some pistols and a doctor on site. You pay him in advance. You treat him with civility. You have him turn around so he can have deniability. Never mind. They say it there. Five, duel before the sun is in the sky. Pick a place to die where it's high and dry. Number six, leave a note for your next of kin. Tell him where you've been. Pray that hell or heaven lets you in. Seven, confess your sins. Ready for the moment of adrenaline when you finally face your opponent. Number eight, your last chance to negotiate. Send in your seconds. See if they can record. Oh, see if they can set the record straight. Um, and where's number nine? Look him in the eye. Aim no higher. Summon all the courage you require. Then count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Number ten paces. Fire. Um, okay. So as we know that, as I mentioned earlier, that comes into play later. Um, with the next duel, which is Philip Hamilton, when somebody at like a commencement speech knocks his father, and we uh, well, I don't, I, we'll figure it out. At one point, like when Anthony Ramos uh, resurfaces as Philip Hamilton, and he's like, "Daddy, Daddy, look, I am a poet." That part it's cute. She's teaching him piano in French, and they sing un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, seat, set, huit, neuf, in the same tone as Ten Dual Commandments. And, I mean, it's just like, I love I love all the tie-ins. And then when he's uh, dying at his bedside, that's what Eliza's singing. It's soul-crushing. I had to leave the room. Okay, that would be enough. I talk about this one on Patreon a lot, too. But the one thing I've noticed more recently that I wanted to call out here is the fundamental difference in Hamilton and Eliza's attitudes. Hamilton will never be satisfied. Conversely, what's the opposite of being satisfied? Ah, thinking something is enough. For Eliza, him simply coming home alive is enough. 
So, well, A, she pulls in, look around, look around, how lucky we are to be alive right now, pulling in um, from the Skylar Sisters song. I mean, there's, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not going to cry. Um, uh, God. When Hamilton says, will you relish being a poor man's wife, unable to provide for your life? She says, I relish being your wife. Look, a lo- look around, look around, look at where you are, look at where you started. The fact that you're alive is a miracle. Just to stay alive, that would be enough. And if this child shows a fraction of your smile or a fragment of your mind, look out world. That would be enough. I don't pretend to know the challenges you're facing, the worlds you keep erasing and creating in your mind. But I'm not afraid. I know who I married. So as long as you come home at the end of the day, that would be enough. Jeez, I'm so, I'm such a loser. <clears throat> We don't need a legacy. We don't need money. If I could grant you peace of mind, if you could let me inside your heart, oh, let me be a part of the narrative in the story they will write someday. Let this moment be the first chapter where you decide to stay and I could be enough and we could be enough and that would be enough. <laughs> I'm laugh crying. I'm not bawling. I'm just like, I don't. what is it? It's not my favorite song, but I just think it's uh, lyrically incredibly touching i think it's a moment people don't pay enough attention to as a testament to her character and um i ruminate over uh the mentality of something being enough and the satisfaction that brings as opposed to always wanting for more and the maniac nature that brings and the juxtaposition of these two attitudes in a relationship. Um, I find it fascinating. I think Eliza is such a wonderful woman, uh, maybe too much so. Uh, and she really does not care about all of the um, optics that Alexander cares about with like money and status and legacy. Uh, she just wants him alive. And... He imagines death so much it feels more like a memory. These things all intertwine. Guns and Ships. War song. Guns and Ships is amazing. I mean, it's amazing. You guys, like, you know, just listen to it. It's such a good song to listen to. Mostly because this is where Lafayette and Hercules Mulligan absolutely shine. Also to be noted that um, Lafayette really... At, he's he's a liaison with France for the supply of equipment and convinces convinces Rochambeau to um, help out the Patriots. And he also um, gets Washington to get Hamilton, like command his own battalion, I think. And uh, Lafayette's also an immigrant. And he this the way David Diggs raps, he so. The whole show is 20,000 words in two and a half hours. And Lafayette's, he spits out 19 words in the span of three seconds um, in the couplet. And I'm never going to stop until I make them drop and burn them up and scatter their remains. I'm, it's the fastest set of lyrics in Broadway history. And what's funny is Davi Diggs has said, like, all things considered, the rapping in Hamilton is pretty slow. Like, it's a more palatable version of rap, uh, you know, for Broadway purposes, thus adding to the cringiness of white people being like, I love rap. And it's like, well... Aaron Burser isn't really like the best representation of um, the art form that is rap music, but whatever doesn't sink your ship back on topic. 
I, I love Guns and Ships. I love The World Turns Upside Down or Battle of Yorktown or whatever. I love Nonstop. These songs are all so good, but I think Yorktown and Nonstop pull in motifs better in a way that I would hi- want to highlight. But I think that what a lot of people miss about this song is that Lafayette's ultimately the one that convinces Washington to let, yeah, to let Hamilton lead his own battalion. And this kind of showcases the speed of Defeat Dick because it's unbelievable. And he's freaking, he's, not only is he rapping insanely fast, defying like all logic for a speech and an enunciation. I'd like, do not get this. But he's rapping in a French accent. He's not French. It's incredible. Hold on. So here we're tying in right hand man as well. Okay, so history has its eyes on you. Washington's just reminding him. Like, you know, don't be a moron. Like when I when I I was younger than you are now, when I was given my first command, I led my men straight into a massacre. I witnessed their deaths firsthand. I made every mistake. I felt the shame rise in me. And even now I lie awake knowing history has its eyes on me. Um, and he says, let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? I know that we can win. I know that greatness lies in you. But remember, from here on in, history has its eyes on you. Um, and this is uh, obviously an important theme that goes through uh, the musical. I mean, history having its eyes on you, but also just in terms of like pump the brakes, Hamilton. Um, you 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 like he's these big dreams of like dying and being a martyr and earlier washington said dying is easy you know young man living is harder and hamilton kind of approaches everything like he has so much control and he romanticizes death all the same meanwhile he has a pregnant wife eliza needs him to stay alive to come home would be enough it's not enough for alex he has to lead a battalion i'm getting frustrated just even thinking about how eliza must feel um the Battle of Yorktown. It's 1781. There's a lot going on in the background. Sometimes somebody in my house thinks it's a good idea to vacuum at times. The HVAC. I don't know. Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> this is like the. Uh, but uh, one thing that stuck out with me, as I said, kind of going back through this, I'm revisiting the lyrics from a new lens. And one that really stuck out to me in the Battle of Yorktown is this reference to, um, and so the American experiment. This, this phrase takes on a new meaning for me. See, that's important. It's it's just that. That the 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 founding fathers knew this was an experiment, and some of the biggest defenders of what the founding fathers established have this level of inflexibility of what I think was meant to be an evolving organism. That is the you know it, it's the result of pushing back against a very old, powerful establishment that treated its citizens poorly. The we all remember taxation without representation as a earworm kind of buzzword similar to that of the mitochondria being the powerhouse of the cell. In rejecting the unfair, what they perceived to be unfair treatment of the colonists from Great Britain, who, mind you, at the time, like I, I'm pretty sure nobody had broken off as a sovereign nation, like to overthrow a kingdom to reject everything they've come from and everything they know in favor of a brighter future, I think is an important thing to remember and how incredibly terrifying that would be in real time, but how important it is to remember that we're not a nation built off of 
staunch inflexibility. We're built off of an experiment, and the vitality of that experiment is contingent upon trial and error. Science in and of itself is the knowledge you gain through repeated experiment, through repeated observation. It's not something you do once and never revisit again. And I just think the the entire musical and the style in which it is told reminds you that sometimes the remix is better than the original. It reminds you the importance of looking at something through a new lens, the importance of telling what happened as far as we know, but applying it to what we know now in order to do better. Uh, but anyway, you know, I guess what I'm not saying is I, I, even though society does not owe me any sort of comfort, um, I, my life has been very comfortable. I suppose I take emotional comfort in the knowledge that uh, foundation is meant to be built upon. And I wish people remember that more often. I just think the whole point of the founding fathers establishing a foundation is that a, fo a foundation in and of itself is not a complete structure. It is incomplete unless it is built upon. And I think history endures periods where may, perhaps it's a house of cards. Perhaps there are structurally sound elements that we, we keep in place. There are many things we need to renovate. But the important thing is we keep building and, I don't know, maintaining that spirit of new construction in terms of being determined to finish and make it whole, even if that's not realistic or it will never happen. Uh, it all, all boils down to new construction. I don't know about you guys. There's a lot of bloggers and influencers. Like, the FU new construction money is to the nth degree right now, and, and I, for one, cannot handle it. <laughs> so it's one thing to see somebody sprawling home and in backyard and pool when you're in like a tiny apartment amidst quarantine. It's a whole other thing when they're like mobilizing building and moving into even bigger houses that I now have to watch them organize. Could I unfollow? Absolutely. Am I going to? God, no. I survive off of this mutual love and disdain. And as discussed in the influencer deep dive. I don't resent their success. They're, how I feel isn't their fault. They should keep on keeping on. They're the ones crushing it. We don't want to have Burr-like envy get the best of us and have it squelch our own ambition, even though I feel like I do that often. Because I'm kind of like, it's like you feel successful. But then relative to other people, you're like, how are they just making money hand over fist? Like, I almost wish I could conduct a social experiment where I tell you in advance, I'm like, guys, for the next four weeks, I'm going to try to get as many brand partnerships as I possibly can. They will be bad. They will be cringy. I will put in minimal effort like I see most influencers doing. And I will tell you exactly how much money I made. I'll give some of it to charity, but the rest I will be keeping because I need to figure out how to make this work. But also, I don't want to do that. That's like not my life's calling. Like, But I think the stubbornness of me like not wanting to do that is maybe like moronic relative to like, the lifestyle I could be living and that therefore the extension of that and how I could be helping others, you know, whatever. This is not the time or place for this conversation. But it wouldn't be a good Hamilton analysis if we can't incorporate the ways in which we look at our competition who come at things from different angles. But at the end of the day, the world is wide enough for us both. That's what we have to always, always, always remember. We American history buffs under know what the deal with the Battle of Yorktown is, I assume. Uh, but, uh, ha yeah, Hamilton's leading a battalion. Lafayette's there, too. Lawrence is down south freeing slaves. 
um, Mulligan does uh, perhaps, I mean, like, it's one of the greatest moments in the whole play. I listen to this before I do anything. I power pose to it. It's so good. Um, and uh, I'll just play a snippet. How do we know that this plan would work? We had a spy on the inside. That's right. Hercules Mulligan! I spine on the British government. I take the measurements, information, and then I smuggle it. Up to my brother's revolutionary covenant. I'm under with the sons of liberty, and I am loving it. See, that's what happens when you up against the ruffians. We in the shit now. Somebody's got to shovel it. Hercules Mulligan. I need no introduction when you knock me down. I get the fuck back up here. Honestly, are you kidding? I was just <laughs> speaking of satisfied. I just I literally while I was listening to that on my headphones, I walked to the kitchen and went and got a Hawaiian roll and just like sat here, ate it and listened to that. And was just like, things are good. And right now in this moment, I am OK. <laughs> Anyways, Yorktown is also important because this is where it starts to pull in a lot of um, motifs. I talk. This is something I talked about in my initial deep dive. Um so many things get tied into this song. It's also worth noting one of the most important lines of the entire show, uh, uh, Immigrants We Get the Job Done, is very important to note because the crowd goes wild. It's Lafayette and Hamilton who are both immigrants. This came at a time especially where the conversation surrounding the wall, surrounding immigration, like this when America was suffering to feel patriotic following the 2016 election, there was a lot of talk of immigration. This incredibly empowering message, I think, was so important. I mean, this country is built off of immigrants. Like the patriots, as we know them, and these founding fathers, they're products of people who took land from people. Like we, we all arrived here at some point, except for those who are indigenous, who were treated horribly at the hands of the colonists and this is a whole other thing of history i constantly want to revisit but it's um i don't know there's been some like criticism of the that line just being like textbook pandering but i disagree i think it's uh lynn himself i mean i think for him he identified with hamilton's story i mean he said because he himself is an immigrant right like i think that there's a lot of theories about how hamilton being an immigrant is largely why his legacy wasn't preserved as some of the other founding fathers. A large reason of why he was maybe exceedingly shamed for his affair when, you know, other men around him were doing the same thing, um, casting stones. And he tried to cancel himself through the Reynolds pamphlet to, to do the integrous thing, but that didn't land either. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of different theories about how, Hamilton's immigrant status played into the way he was spoken about and treated during his life and after his life. I think Lynn, as an immigrant himself, it was important for him to share the arc of an immigrant story to kind of shift his legacy. Um, despite questionable decisions during his life, his uh, contribution to the United States is tremendous. This leads us back to a different conversation of, you know, w when we're looking at uh, if, if a person is as good or great and their contribution kind of like okay are you a good president if you're if you have a certain set of goals and you meet those goals are we calling you good or are we calling you a good president if you uh meet criteria of moral relativism that allows you to allows us to place your decisions within today's um moral standards right uh, and i think i don't know i think about this often in terms of who you learned who i learned about or who was positioned in my education as being a great leader, an effective leader, 
um, the the way it's like our the way society operates, the the standards we operate against are constantly evolving. Yet these immense re- events like remain static, like they just happened. But there's inevitable bias in how they're told. And you almost have to stop yourself and be like, am I thinking about this right? And when you tell one's accomplishments as a historical figure with and you don't offset their wrongdoings, you have to ask yourself, like, is success for a historical figure, a clinical mapping of goals to outcomes without agnostic of sentiment, agnostic of what today we would deem right or wrong or good or bad? the way we talk about historical figures contributions like the acquisition of land for example think of the louisiana purchase i often think about um james k polk i was obsessed with him when i was a kid because i thought it was fascinating that there's so much talk of the louisiana purchase but you never really hear about how polk like his efforts are how we gain possession of the land that is modern day california nevada utah new mexico arizona colorado texas oklahoma kansas wyoming um the his presidency is like such a non-event and he's kind of a person whose legacy legacy is lost so i i just find this interesting and follow you know on the heels of my hamilton obsession i think he's another historical figure i'd be interested to talk to in that hypothetical dinner party situation um i just i don't know there's something missing there for me and uh i was on a podcast who said like who's a person a successful person living or dead you want to talk to or i forget what the question was and I brought up my fascination with him when I was young in terms of uh, what we know people for versus those whose contributions kind of fall by the wayside despite our immense usage of them today. And then somebody was like, well, when you think about contribution, you have to offset that he um, like stole land from indigenous people. And then I kind of had a moment of like, wait, I got this is when I started like overhauling my thought process um, because it it bothered me that somebody else so like in my head i've just had that opinion that's what i was talking about with the cement block earlier it's like you learn something it's it remains static it just what is what it is and you forget that there's like bias or you know slant to it but if somebody hears me say i'm uh fascinated by james k polk's contribution and they take the sentiment of contribution as me endorsing the militant displacement of indigenous indigenous populations like god no that's not what i mean but the U, a large portion of the U.S. and all of these states that comprise our country, like that's how we attain them. So it's like I find it confusing <laughs> um, how how to think about history, and I'm always interested in how history teachers teach um, what happened and if it was good or bad or helpful or not helpful, and what moral standard they hold it to. Um, I think. And if I'm like, wait, so if I'm grateful for a majority of the land in the United States, which I and other people benefit from, live on, I was born in California, like, you know, whatever. If I support that, am I supporting the displacement of indigenous people? How do I reconcile those two things? Like, when do you apply historical context context, and how do you incorporate presentism to acknowledge the wrongdoing, but also not impede on the accuracy? Right. Because if you twist it to, you know, modern standards, there there's an element of inaccuracy there. And to be clear, there's like zero confusion about the reprehensibility of slavery. Even my education made crystal clear, awful, reprehensible, regrettable, shameful, all the things that was never, ever justified within historical context. Um, 
But I think about land acquisition a lot in this way in terms of, God, what a horrible means to an end that I technically still benefit from that is our country today, you know? Deeper philosophical discussion for a different day that I cannot solve now, nor do I have an answer for now. But I think it's important to be mindful of because I don't access a lot of facts in my head until I do. And then when I say them, I have to take a step back and say, am I thinking about that right? Is that how I learned it? Do I actually know what happened? Could I be offending somebody by the way I'm presenting this situation? And when it relates, you know, when it comes to morality, what is... What, what, when does it have a universal through line independent of, of environment that transcends space and time? And when does it warrant cultural context? When is something fundamentally good or bad? And when is something good or bad depending on the time? And how on earth would you teach that while still maintaining accuracy, but also presenting it in a way that allows us to learn from history and not make mistakes again? And I think it's like a really tricky space and it's a bit of a blind spot for me and it's something I'm not perfect at and I'm sure even the way I'm talking about this is not correct and I'm constantly learning and working on it and I just wanted to share okay unpopular opinion not a fan of dear there dear Theodosia uh oh I skipped so King George comes back um say uh, you cheat with the French now I'm fighting with France and with Spain I'm so blue I thought we made an arrangement when you went away you were mine to subdue well just even despite our estrangement I've got a small query from you what comes next you've been freed do you know how hard it is to lead this is one of my favorite parts you're on your own awesome wow (laughs) do you have a clue what happens now um blah 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 he's basically saying you're on your own we move into dear Theodosia it humanizes Bird humanizes Hamilton but also it's it's when Lin Manuel Miranda is like, I think he's a force on stage. And in terms of his, the way he portrays Hamilton to me is perfect. But he 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 himself knows he he doesn't have the pipes Burr has. I think when he is singing and not like rapping or talk singing, it's it doesn't it's not always super comfortable um, for me. But you know, it's it's a very sweet ode to their children that makes them just not seem like insane. <laughs> blood-hungry, uh, war-obsessed patriots. Well, I guess Burr never was, but Alexander certainly seemed that way. Now we have Nonstop. This is the last song before um, Act 2, and this incorporates every single motif humanly possible. What's happening in Nonstop, it's the Act 1 finale song. It's it's After the war, Hamilton went back to New York. After the war, Burr went back to New York. They both practiced law. Burr worked next door. This is tracking Hamilton's uh, like career from the war ending to his appointment as Secretary of the Treasury under um, George Washington. The key event being the drafting of the Federalist Papers, um, which is another one of my favorite lines that uh, sometimes when like I'm angry, I just want to arbitrarily scream because it feels good. Hamilton wrote the other 51. I find that once again to be brilliant vocal acting. It's uh, astonishment. It's anger. It's envy. It's frustration. It's so many things the way he's saying that. Like he's he's impressed and furious. He's uh, envious. Yet he just spent the song staunchly arguing. He'll keep his plans close to his chest. Um, he'll you know wait to see which way the wind will blow. Um, anyways, the song, I mean, the song is wild. It's so long. It's got everything in it. It's a real, uh, apex of, uh, Burr and Hamilton not agreeing. And, um, I think that one of the greatest lyrics is pretty, uh, inarguably 
verbal rocks at these uh, mediocrities. What is it? I've practiced the law. I've practically perfected it. I've seen injustice in the world and I've corrected it. Now for a strong central democracy, if not, then I'll be Socrates throwing verbal rocks at these mediocrities. So Hamilton gets chosen for the um, Constitutional Convention. He just like, (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) It just makes you laugh. He's just so extra, for lack of a better word. Like, he just he just decides to propose his own form of government. Like, he just straight up completely stands up for six hours. And it's like, anyway, I'm a junior delegate, but here's how I think we should overhaul this whole thing. The melody conveys, like, a sense of urgency on Hamilton's part. And I think there's, I don't know, just his desire to get his plan through Congress, his desire to keep fighting and fighting and uh, worrying about nothing but the um, fate of the Republic. And while Burr dictates the majority of the track, it pulls in nearly like every theme that we've had up until this point. Let me play some of it. So what you're about to hear, I think, is this culmination at the point of intermission where you almost hear a cacophony of all of the people that Hamilton is affecting and that are in his ear and the chaos he feels to get his plan through Congress to report back to work. And you hear Eliza's frustration and wanting him home. And then you hear the convergence of all of these people that are affected by his um, decision making. You hear, well, like, well, she says, look around, look around. Isn't this enough? pertaining to a previous song then she says she's helpless at his decision then angelica pipes in with never being satisfied that george washington is history has his eyes on you then alex is like i'm not throwing away my shot just you wait i mean the, the whole it's in, it's insanity it's beautiful it ties in everything we've we've worked toward up until this point why do you assume you're the smartest in the room another thing i want to point out is that i think that the um so you know how at the the first song alexander says there's a million things i haven't done but just you wait and then and satisfied when he angelic asks where's your family from he says unimportant there's a million things i haven't done that is my exact response and somebody asked me about my career uh, I'm just, I feel like, I'm just like, you just, you wait. I don't know, I don't know what to say. I'm like, hopefully something, I material I can tell you at some point. Uh, but I think there's an interesting tie-in between Alexander consistently saying, just you wait, I'm not throwing away my shot, and Burr, his entire uh, through line being that he waits. So, uh, again, the, the, thematically at odds, so brilliant, chef's kiss, don't even know how to handle it. Moving on to act two. Next on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash be there in five. I will be doing act two. Again, I think I'm going to take a two-pronged approach, like a more uh, clinical discussion that I'll post today. And then I'm going to finish out after I watch it tonight at midnight, tomorrow morning. Um, Like I said, I was just having so much trouble with the sadder parts and I almost want to discuss them as they are portrayed once I can see people's faces and stuff up close up close and I'm not crying and I'm not just hearing the audio it'll I think it'll be a different experience or at least that's what we can talk about um and I'll kind of do more of a 
overarching themes, thoughts, musings along with that as well. The thing is, too, I never, like, I, I think probably the richest reservoir of analyses is on genius lyrics, but I haven't been letting my, I haven't gone through it because I, I try to not, when I'm analyzing something, I try to not overread what other people say because then I lose my own interpretation and genius, but a genius lyrics is really interesting. I just was like, if I go through this now, I'm going to go through, like, this is what I'm going to be walking through, which I, you know, probably would be more entertaining anyway, but I think I'm for the second half too. I want to look at, go back and look at um, some of what the lyrical experts say, because again, I don't know any of this is fact. It's just, you know, my opinion that I'm providing you for fun. So take it with a grain of salt. But anyway, I'm, I want to close out with um, a song I will probably take out after today, but I just want you guys to hear it. Uh, it's not officially in the play, so I feel like <laughs> less bad about it. But again, if you have Spotify, YouTube, everything's free now. It's very annoying that I can't use music, but I want you to hear the song because it's important leading into Act 2, and I want you to get pumped, get angry, uh, because before we're sad, we're mad. When Alexander has his affair, it writes the Reynolds pamphlet. I mean, so this is the, yeah, the historical density of the back half is is immense, and we'll get into it. But Angelica, um, a cut scene is her returning from London when Alexander cheats on Eliza and decides to just like drop this bomb and cancel himself with the Reynolds pamphlet. I think the song adds great context that we're kind of missing prior to the Reynolds pamphlet, and it also showcases Angelica's uh, fierce defense of her sister, which to me makes up for any weirdness of the love triangle, right? So um, hope you enjoy that. Patreon.com slash be there in five for act two. Hopefully we'll be up shortly pending my internet issues. Um, but alas, there's always more to discuss after we actually watch it. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope this was a good use of your time podcast at be there in five.com please 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 share on your story and if you're private tag me it makes a huge difference and these these take a lot of time and it just means a lot if you can get the word out it's tough to grow as a podcast as young scrappy and hungry as i am it's hard to like get pumped and do stuff from your house i was having a lot more fun when i was like out in live shows and i could podcast with people in person like i'm, I'm struggling here just being solo behind the mic again but your support makes all the difference and i love you for it so i will talk to you soon Thank you for bearing with me. Any audio issues, the length, the repetitiveness. I don't know. It's hard to edit these back when I'm just excited and I have no idea what I already said sometimes. So you guys are the best and I'll catch you next week and have a very happy 4th of July. Remember above all else, even when there are times when you're not feeling the proudest to be a part of this country, be a part, be proud of being a part of the great American experience whose objective is to forever be improving, forever be retesting its hypotheses and to hopefully have people like you, who are arguing first and foremost for what uh, the patriots fought the hardest for, which is our freedom, and which they proposed in the Declaration of Independence, allegedly as our equality, which is more important than anything else. History has its eyes on you. You know, <laughs> I, w I would love to end on that prof more profound note, but I feel like there's got to be like a poor name history as its thighs on you, right? I mean, there's no, there's so, there's so much wordplay opportunity here. <laughs> Okay, guys, I love you. As always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five, I swear.
congratulations for the rest of your life. Every sacrifice you make is for my sister. Give her the best life. Congratulations.